This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, March 6th. And now, please rise for the singing of our national Welcome to episode 84 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. This is a weekly baseball podcast. Paul and I both live in Champaign, Illinois. We are twin brothers. Uh, Paul, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, as we're talking, I am watching, uh, looks like 12 and 13 year olds practice across the across the street. So we are um, smack dab in the middle of baseball season. Not in the middle. Well, yeah, correct. Smack dab in the beginning of the baseball season. Yep. March Madness thoughts? Uh, my heart was ripped out watching the Atlanta yesterday. Yeah, not much to add. Who is your team now that Illinois probably won't make the tournament? Uh, Gonzaga, for sure. I want uh, I want them to make a Final Four. Okay. What about you? Oh, I probably need to see the bracket. Uh, I'm going, we're both going to uh, the first round of the tournament. Or second round, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a uh, a regional site in Indianapolis this year, so it's been on my uh, sports bucket list for a while to attend one of those. So I yeah, got, it'll be fun. I got uh, tickets for uh, our father, me, and then uh, one other. And so on Sunday of that opening weekend, Paul will be with us for two games, and then uh, Friday, just me and my dad. So that'll be fun. Um, excited. You know, there's probably going to be like. Uh, one of the teams uh, that's near Indy, so like Kentucky or uh, oh, but- Butler, you know, they might have a chance. Uh, I know the NCAA kind of takes into the takes into account those things. I thought uh, Indiana might at the end of the year, but not so much anymore. Yep, uh, Purdue would be another one. Oh yeah, they're around there. So uh, yeah, um, maybe some Illinois teams. Illinois might you know squeak in if they win a couple games in the Big Ten tournament. Uh, Illinois State has a chance. Uh, slim, North, of slim course, chance. Of course, Northwestern will make their first tournament ever. Unfortunately. <laughs> yes. I think they deserve it, though. Oh, for sure. The uh, the pass, um, you know, the full court pass to win the game. What's the, what's the baseball equivalent of that? Um. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a tie game, so I and it was at home. So even if they went to overtime, my money would have been on Northwestern. So just, just kind of tie game, bottom of the ninth. Uh, two outs. Yeah, a home run or something. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. Well. Uh. Preview for this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh. We have baseball on TV. It's back. Paul selected a, a kids TV show. Uh. Shows where he's at in life. Uh. Then we have deep dive, which is an interesting look. Fascinating. Back at the uh, 2001, uh, 2002 off season. Uh, so before the 2002 season, some some wild stuff went down in terms of uh, contraction and uh, teams not knowing if they'd exist come the 2002 season. I, and I think it's fair to say that we are the only podcast in the world this week that is doing a deep dive on that topic. Um, uh, maybe ever. Ever, yeah. Yeah, podcasts weren't around back then. So we're, we're making history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lastly, we'll talk to Dan Rosenheck, who is a uh, sabermetric 
analytical guy that uh, writes for The Economist, and he has some interesting findings on uh, spring training. And to, to give you a taste of that, uh, I'm just going to play a little clip from uh, an interview he did with Brian Kenny back in uh, 2015 before the season. So here's a, here's a small clip of that training statistics normally yes. we look at them and i think even the players that we the ex-players that are analysts here at mlb network will say don't take this stuff too seriously which a lot of people agree with small sample size they're not, it's not the same intensity of the games you are finding something with spring training stats right i am there's a widespread consensus that spring training statistics mean absolutely nothing and that the best thing to do if you want to make predictions is dig your head in the sand for all of march and then come out in april because they'll only distract you and uh, I just started looking at this, at the numbers, because it just seemed crazy to me that uh, information that we got one day ago could be completely useless when everything else we know is at least six months old. Yeah, we were lucky to have uh, Dan on. He, he actually took a break from presenting out at uh, Sloan at MIT. So uh, probably the smartest guy we've ever had on our podcast, arguably the smartest guy. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other kind of stat head guys we've had on. Harvard grad. Yeah, I mean, most of the people we have on are kind of have a analytical bent to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, this guy's probably the first first guy that's kind of in the nitty gritty of it. Mm-hmm. Nate Silver next week. <laughs> yeah, you line it up. Yeah, so uh, look forward to that interview with Dan uh, later. And that's actually not the uh, the only time that we'll talk about the uh, MIT Sloan conference. Mm. Got some uh, interesting things Teaser. For, for out of the box. Yep. Before we get into all that, though, our Nelly update this week. Uh, again, we do this every week on the podcast to thank him for use of uh, Better Up as our intro song. Uh, big uh, big Nelly news. Uh, him and Mike Piazza got, got into it. Paul, did you see this? I did not see this. Yeah, it was t- It was actually talked about on some uh, national like sports pop culture shows. Hmm. Uh, Jalen and Jacoby talked about it for a little bit. Um, so this, well, was, this was actually mainstream news, not just uh, forced a foot in the box filler at the beginning but uh, Mike Piazza uh, retired from baseball obviously now uh, in the Hall of Fame Uh, but he is not uh, interested in a a career in baseball he actually uh, is into soccer now and he is a uh, owner of a low-tier soccer team in Mm -hmm. Italy yeah that that was recent I saw that yeah so the the soccer's team uh, it's named uh, Regina which I'm probably butchering R-E-G-G-I-A-N-A uh, I googled how to pronounce that, but I'm forgetting now. So, Regina is how I'm going to pronounce it. And then, uh, so he he owns that team. Uh, he's big into that. In a New York Times story recently, they talked to Piazza about this new uh, new career, and this is what the article says. Noting that he had met with groups aiming for expansion franchises in the Major League Soccer (MLS) uh, before buying Regina, he said, "I'd rather be poor in Italy than based in St. Louis. You can't get a good meal there." So, of course, I think uh, St. Louis is getting an uh, MLS team, or they want to get an MLS team with the Rams leaving town. And so uh, Piazza's talking about why he'd rather own a team in, in Europe, in Italy, than St. Louis. So people in St. Louis did not take this kindly. Uh, before we get Nelly's response, Paul, you've been to St. Louis quite often. You enjoy that city more than I do. Do you think their food scene is, is subpar? Oh, certainly not. Uh, what's striking to me, they have a... a Italian community called uh, the Hill, and uh, Piazza's Italian, right? That's like where Yogi yeah. Berra grew up. Uh, several others. They have really, con- I mean, decent uh, American Italian food. So it, it's striking to me that Piazza would say it was, and that in particular, 
I mean, St. Louis has violence. At, mm-hmm. you know, it's I think it's the most segregated city. So that it's got um, certainly like troubling aspects to it. But the food scene doesn't <laughs> seem like the thing you would call out. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what Piazza was thinking. Probably wasn't Tim thinking. Drew's. It's what? like the best ice cream. Really? Some of the best ice, ice cream in the Midwest. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't think he was thinking too in depth, but uh, Nelly uh, tweeted uh, this video out that we uh, retweeted from a foot in the box. But uh, he apparently ran into Piazza at some event and uh, tweeted out the, the video, and we'll play it for you right now. I got him. I got him under control. We're not going to let him get away with that. He's okay. We're going to have him come down and eat on the hill. So there you go, Paul. You're right. The hill. Mm-hmm. Famous. Yeah. I mean, now that I think about it a bit more, their pizza scene is pretty awful. So maybe uh, maybe that's what Piazza's getting. What's at. the name of the famous pizza chain? Emos. Emos, yeah. Uh, yeah, so Nelly tweeted that. Uh, if you watch the video, uh, which we'll link to in the podcast episode page at afootinthebox.com, uh, Piazza's drunk, very clearly <laughs> drunk. And I'm guessing Nelly might be inebriated as well. So uh, Nelly tweeted that video out, and then Piazza tweeted the following. Want to thank Nelly for being so cool last night. Said I can come back to St. Louis for some real good food. Life is funny. Hashtag lesson learned. You can only find this type of high-level analysis from a foot in the box. Absolutely. That's our Nelly update. Uh, getting into our podcast, Paul, before we do baseball on TV, uh, do you have any uh, baseball items you'd like to discuss? Yeah. Um, and uh, feel free to stop me if, if you're going to tackle any of this later. Sure. But uh, David Price um, was on the brink of Tommy John, or that, at least that's what most of us thought. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's just... Um, some general soreness, seven to ten days, and he'll be good to go. Um, it's pretty fascinating, though, how like one report can send a whole fan base. Mm-hmm. And even like, you know, I'm a White Sox fan. I started scheming like, all right, who can we get for Jose Quintana? And I saw several other teams doing that too. So you can go down this rabbit trail when he was fine. Did you read the Grant Brisby piece about, uh, you know, when guys get um, – Second opinions from James Andrews, how often they mm-hmm. turn out to be Tommy John? Is it like 90% of the time or something? Yeah, I mean, more than 90%. I think wow. uh, recently he did, you looked at it like maybe like the last 25 uh, guys that have had um, second opinions with Andrews, uh, and I think maybe 20 or so needed Tommy John, and a few others were out an entire season, and then mm-hmm. I think only one of that group uh, was fine after after rest. So he's mm-hmm. a small minority, so huge uh Huge miracle for the Red Sox and for Red Sox fans. Um, and actually, it's funny. Uh, Andrews was at the NFL Combine, right? So Price had to had to go to Indy and mm-hmm. stop there. Yeah, I was shocked. I thought for sure it was Tommy John or uh, some type of surgery. And it's it's nuts with Price. Maybe the reason why he um, we shouldn't be as surprised is how durable he's been. He's never really gotten hurt, right? In the majors, and we tweeted out uh, kind of a list of. His stats from the past five years or so, and just incredibly durable. Always makes thirty starts. Always pitches two hundred ish innings. Yeah. Uh, one, I think over three hundred innings one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we shouldn't be uh, as surprised. Um, the other big story was the new rules that were put into place, and um, the the actual rules uh, that were in- instituted. I want to say Wednesday or Thursday this past week um, aren't as big of a deal, I think, as the kind of the general. Um, turmoil between Manfred and 
Tony Clark and the Players Association, but but the specific rules that went into effect or will go into effect this year. Um, so there there's now a no pitch intentional walk, um, RIP intentional walk. <laughs> um, managers will have 30 seconds now to decide if they want to challenge a play. That's new, so you won't get you know a manager taking an exceedingly long time to to make a decision. Uh, and then the last one was. Um, the replay center back in New York will have kind of a general guideline of two minutes to make a call. And there's exceptions to that. That's not a hard and fast rule. Um, but those are kind of the three big ones. There's also one about uh, like a David Price, his pickoff move. I don't know if you saw that, Mm-mm. but a pitcher, he can only move. He can only make like one movement towards the plate. Um, what does Price do? He moves his... It's like a combination of his front foot and his back foot. Like you, for a pickoff move, you can't move both feet. You can only move one. You know, some guys will, some lefties will step off. Yeah. But, uh, all right. Well, moving on, uh, just the only thing I want to talk about was the World Baseball Classic. But before I do, a couple neat updates on, uh, two of our favorite guests that we've had on the podcast. So, uh, they're both U of I professors, or they're both connected to the University of Illinois. Alan Nathan who was a guest on uh, last off season. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also would be on the list of smartest guests True. we've ever had. True. Uh, he is giving a public lecture on the physics of baseball at the Chicago Public Library on March 30th from 6 to 7.30. So if you're in that neck of the woods, uh, check it out. It's right before the baseball season. So it would be kind of a good thing to get you primed for baseball season. I'm sure that would be great, and it's going to be um, – recorded and so we'll be able to watch it on youtube later so we'll tweet out that link alan is a great guy and then seconds our friend adrian burgos mm-hmm. professor uh hispanic studies at the university of illinois or historian of u.s latinos baseball sports and urban histories is the official title he is now the editor-in-chief of a new cool website la vida baseball and uh you can find that at lavidabaseball.com uh, so it's it's all about uh, Hispanic baseball players and their stories. So it's new content every day. I actually ran into Adrian at a uh, Illinois basketball game this past week when they played Michigan State in Champaign and talked to him for about 10 minutes. It was the same day that the site launched. Uh, the site is in connection with the Hall of Fame, so it's got some kind of weight behind it. And he's really excited about it. So uh, check that out, LaVitaBaseball.com. Follow them on Twitter at LaVitaBaseball. Yeah, one of the leading kind of writers and thinkers about um the integration of Latin American baseball players. And I think that'll be a more pressing issue, you know, as we go forward, mm-hmm. uh, as more, more and more players come out of Latin America with Cuba, um, you know, relations improving between the U S and, right. and Cuba. And, um, yeah. And on I, think, that, I think more and more players will come from there. Did you read the story where earlier this week where Jose Abreu gave testimony in a federal case in Miami that he ate, uh, the first page of a fake passport to get here from I, Cuba. I saw the headline. I didn't read the article. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. Um, pretty startling what guys will do to get here. Yeah. It's a good segue into uh, talk on the World Baseball Classic. <laughs> so, Paul, uh, going into this podcast, were you prepared at all to talk about the World Baseball Classic? I have a few notes. Awesome. Well, I'm pretty pumped about it. The last couple of days, I've actually looked into it. Uh, it started with me just uh, on MLB.com's uh, website uh, looking at hats and jerseys and stuff just checking out some of uh, stuff for the World Baseball Classic. Uh, it's super cool. 
uh, everything except the U.S. gear. That's how it started, and then I've just gotten more and more into it. Looked at the rosters for various teams, and I'm just uh, legitimately excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, excited for it to start. So excited that you'll wake up at 3.30 tomorrow morning <laughs> to watch Israel versus South Korea. Yeah, so by the time people listen to this on Monday morning, uh, Jason Marquis will have pitched a gym <laughs> for Team Israel. Sam Fold and Ike Davis will have gone back-to-back. <laughs> but yeah, they start on Monday morning, and then uh, the U.S., plays this uh friday against columbia at five central and then they play the dominican republic on saturday at five thirty. that game's actually sold out mm-hmm. and all all of the u.s games are on mlb network i think so yeah and then they play canada on sunday night so columbia friday dominican republic sun, uh, saturday and then canada on sunday just some background on the world baseball classic uh there are 16 teams four pools kind of like the world cup uh this is the fourth iteration of the world baseball classic it was started uh, kind of in an effort to pick up where the olympics left off mm-hmm. when they nixed baseball as a as an olympic sport uh, japan won the first two uh, wbcs in 2006 and 2009 and then the dominican republic won in 2013 and uh, the u.s has never made it to the championship game right yeah they've only made the semifinals once their overall overall record is actually 10 and 10 uh, so they have not been great, even though they've had pretty good buy-in from some decent players. Mm-hmm. And uh, this year's no different. I mean, they've got a solid lineup. Um, very, very good lineup. Seems like a weak rotation. Weak. Yeah, I would agree with that. But, I mean, their lineup, Posey catching uh, Arenado at third, Brandon Crawford at short. Uh, I think Ken- Car- Kinsler. Uh, Kinsler, Carpenter was going to play, but he backed out. Um, Goldschmidt. So, yeah, Kinsler, Josh Harrison, um, Goldschmidt, Eric Hosmer. Yelich. Yep. Uh, Daniel Murphy is on the team. Yeah, it's a really good lineup. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton's probably the, the headliner. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's a fun team. Uh, I'm not sure who's going to pitch. Uh, I think uh, Duffy, Daniel Duffy's on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, Our guy, uh, Tina Roark. Yeah. Yeah, so it should be fun. And, and there's a lot of good teams, a lot of good players, a lot of good pros playing in the WBC. Paul, uh, I know you're probably not prepared for this, but I thought we we would draft teams mm. of, the, of the 16 as a as a competition. All right, Paul, uh, because you are not as prepared as I am, I will give you the first pick. So uh, we'll go overall record for our teams throughout the, the WBC, and then we'll, I guess we'll throw in like five points for the champion. All right. Um, I'll go Dominican Republic. All right, we'll snake it. I'm going to take the United States, and I will take Japan. Hmm. Uh, I'll go Mexico, and I get another one right. Um, and South Korea. I'll take uh, Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Uh, Cuba and um, Canada, just because Eric Gagne is pitching. And Ryan Dempster. All right, I'm going to take the Netherlands, who's actually got a pretty solid squad, if you look into them a little bit. And let's see here. We're down to the nitty-gritty. I'll take uh, Colombia. All right, I'll take Italy and uh, Israel. So that gives you both of the Chinas. 
Well, you have you have one more pick. Oh, sorry. Australia's still on the board, too? Does that mean you're taking Australia? <laughs> uh, I'll take China and... Uh, was it China? Chinese Taipei. Chinese Taipei, yeah. I have no idea what that is. And I'll take Australia. <laughs> Shout out to our friend Ben. Will Donald Trump tweet about the World Baseball Classic? <laughs> if America wins. Too bad Russia's not in it. Remember that story last year when baseball bat sales were up in Russia? Yeah, oh, yes, I do. Yeah, there's there's our teams. Peter has the U.S., Japan, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Netherlands, Colombia, China, and Chinese Taipei. Paul has Dominican Republic, Mexico, Korea, Cuba, Canada, Italy, Israel, and Australia. Uh, so we'll track those records. I think by the time we record again, it'll be over. So this will be a one-shot deal. Uh, Paul, what's on the line here? Um, I say that's you owe me twenty dollars because of the Illinois game yesterday. Let's go double or nothing on that. Sounds good to me. Okay, uh, moving on. Uh, let's talk about baseball on TV. Paul, it was your uh, your turn this week. Yes, uh, this week we took a look at Arthur, which was a cartoon in the mid '90s and early 2000s. The episode we're taking a look at is from season one, episode 38. A lot of episodes to that first season. Um, the original air date was 1996 on this episode, and it was later adapted into a book. I believe it was a New York Times bestseller. Um, so the cartoon was made into a book. Correct. Wow. Pretty simple plotline, and it was about a 10-minute episode. I don't know if all episodes You know what animal Arthur is? An art bark. Yes. Arthur tries out for his little league team. He makes the team, but he can't catch the ball very well. The sun gets in his eyes. His friend Francine teases him. Um, but she has her own issues. She can't really throw the ball over the plate. Mm-hmm. She decides to help him. Arthur decides to help her pitch better. Um, he learns to shield the sun with his glove, thanks to Francine, becomes decent at catching the ball. They learn the importance of teamwork, you know, helping each other in, in their weaknesses, and that is the extent of the episode. Well, your recap was just uh, a bit shorter than the actual episode <laughs> time, which was 11 minutes. But we do have a clip here. Now, has Benson seen this? He watched with me. Okay. He enjoy it? He did. He sat still, which is a lot for a 17-month-old. Um, the clip we have, do you have anything to add before we go to our clip? I have absolutely nothing to add. Um, comes from around halfway through the episode when Arthur's dad explains to him the importance of concentration in baseball. Concentration. Now if he can only catch the ball. D.W. No, she's right. That's what everybody else says. Nonsense. I bet you dollars to donuts that right now Coach Frensky is talking about what a terrific team he's got. You want me to take Arthur off the team? All right, for Out of the Box this week, I'm changing things up a bit. Um, the story I want to talk about is uh, the sad news that Brett Lord... <laughs> will no longer be a member of the White Sox. Uh, in case you missed it, the hot-headed infielder was released on Friday, um, which is surprising because he was somewhat talented, and really the White Sox have no incentive to release him if they could have traded him for something later in the year. But um, I'm, I forgot one uh, one more WBC thing. Are you serious? Yes. What would that be? Uanis uh, Espedes. Younger brother plays for team, team Cuba. I saw that, yeah. Um, Sorry. 
Yeah, feel free to interrupt me throughout the podcast with more WBC facts. I'm most sad uh, about Lori, and I'm including my wife in this, um, because we had followed his Instagram very closely. Um, and uh, for those that might not know, um, Lori is pretty out there. Um, you might even say he's he's borderline nuts. Um, to give you a sense for his craziness, um, he threw a helmet at an umpire um, back when he played for the Blue Jays. He's gotten into tussles with um, almost every opponent he's ever played with. Um, got into it with the, with the Royals. Um, always really talented, but a hothead. So Pete, for Out of the Box, I have a, a game I'd like to play. This is somewhat inspired by Wait, wait, don't tell me. An NPR um, show. Of course. I have four descriptions of Brett Laurie Instagram posts for you. Three of them are true. One of them is false. You have okay. to tell me which one is false. Are you ready to play? Yes, I am ready. All right. One of these is false. Three are true. First, after a longer than anticipated wait at the barber, Laurie posts a selfie video and complains, saying... My hair should literally take eight minutes to cut if you just get to work. But this sports clips. Wow. That's number one. Number two. Demonstrating his love for working out, Lori posts a picture of himself bench pressing and comments, train insane or remain the same. It's definitely real. Number three. You wouldn't think of that. Commenting on his love for Bosley hair product commercials, Lori impersonates a Bosley customer saying, this is my hair. I cut this hair. I wash this hair. I mess this hair up if I want to mess this hair up. And last, posting a picture of a roaring lion on a mountain, Lori comments, it is better to live one day as a lion than 100 years as a sheep. All right, so number two is definitely true. Can you confirm? Uh, number two would be the training team. Yes. Or, uh, no, you have to guess the false one. I'm, but I'm, I'm, that's not how the game works. <laughs> Guess which one's false. All right, so that one's definitely true. The first one was uh, the haircut, sports clips haircut. I'm gonna go. Um, hmm. I'm gonna go one also being true, and then the lion is true. So I'm guessing the third one's false. The Bosley hair product. Yes. No, he's a a big fan of Bosley. Actually, several so is, videos. About is the that. other haircut false? True. Uh, so it's the lion. No. You made up the second one. Train insane or stay the same was the false one. You made that up. I made it up. Impressive. Yeah. Yeah, so it, uh, if you want some fun while you're at work this week or trying to kill some time, just go look up Brett Laurie on Instagram. I'm sure he's posted some things since getting released from the White Sox that are borderline uh, crazy. But Will you stop following him now? Uh, certainly, yes. Really? I mean, he, he is... I would think it'd only get better. No, no, no. He posts frequently, and he is—he's legitimately crazy. We'll link to his uh, Instagram yeah, in our sure. episode page. I saw—I just saw a report the Rays are interested. So, yeah, I mean, he's talented, so you could put it together at some point. All right, my article is an actual article, not a uh, Instagram <laughs> page. So, like I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm going to talk about something that came from the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston. Um, this past weekend. So uh, b uh, Baseball Advanced Media, BAM, uh, we've talked about them before a lot. Um, in 2015, our first year, I feel like that's, we went through a, a few week phase of, of talking about them a lot. But they run uh, StatCast, mm -hmm. is kind of their smaller baseball thing. They also uh, just have all this server space for leagues and streaming services. 
uh, to use. So like HBO and the NHL use them for mm-hmm. streaming their stuff. Yeah, they're kind of like a pinnacle in the digital sports industry. Yeah, I mean, they're worth like a couple billion dollars right now. Uh, Jeff Passan actually, uh, and I'll link to this in the podcast uh, episode page, but in his article on Saturday, he said about Baseball Advanced Media, it's uh, MLB's greatest success story of the past quarter century, an investment of a couple million dollars from each team that blossomed into the largest tech outfit on the East Coast and the hub for much of the video that streams into American households and devices. Mm. Even the lowest revenue franchises would sell for more than a billion dollars today, in part because of their one-thirtieth stake in baseball advanced media. Wow. And I think this actually has a lot of tie-in to what we're going to talk about in deep dive with the, right. with the 2001 offseason and uh, all that was going into revenue at the time. So uh, all 30 teams have a stake in this $2 billion company. Saved baseball. Perhaps. Yeah. And the A's, I would say. The A's in advanced media. All right. Uh, but StatCast is their kind of small baseball thing that they do. Uh, so three people kind of run StatCast. Darren Woolman, Mike Petriello, and Tom Tango. Now with Tango, that's not his real name. Uh <laughs> He cares not to provide his actual age either. Uh, he's recognized as one of the greatest sabermetric minds of uh, any time uh, ever. Some people know, have to know his name, right? Or no? Uh, I'm, I, according to Passon, no. Um, wow. And he's actually going to make his first public appearance uh, this next week at the Saber Analytics Conference in Phoenix. Wow. Uh, so big deal. Uh, Tom Tango is his, his code name. But those three guys kind of run StatCast. Petriello is kind of the journalist that um, puts out stories on it. And both of the uh, uh, stats that I'm going to talk about come from stories that he did over the weekend. And then Darren Woolman kind of works with the data mm-hmm. behind it. So they're they're hoping to, to really make stats more accessible um, and make more sense. So they've got all this data uh, that they've been collecting for a couple years now. They put cameras in each major league stadium. And, uh, you know, they're taking all this data in and they're tweaking it to, to come out, um, pump out, things that you know casual fans can use not just uh, sabermetric people so i think of like our dad like i think he's probably the target market of making stats that make sense to him and that he doesn't dismiss right away mm-hmm. so, well i and also with that guess a lot of it would be like what's the point it, it you know things like billy hamilton ran 20 miles per hour to catch that like it I mean, it was yeah. kind of like a initial gee whiz, but then it's like yeah, they ha- they have all this data, but how do you how do you actually use it? How do you make it into something productive? Right. Uh, so I want to talk about a couple of stats. The first thing they're hoping to do is make war more accessible. They're kind of hoping to make their own war metric. So look out for that. Uh, I didn't see any uh, articles on that this weekend, but I might talk about it in future hmm. weeks. The two that I want to talk about this week are hit probability and catch probability, and they're pretty interconnected. So hit probability. It takes the velocity, exit velocity of a, a ball off a bat and then the launch angle and uh, uh, gives the probability that ball turns into a hit. Hmm. So each trackball is assigned a, a certain percentage, you know, oh, with this exit velocity, with this launch angle, that falls in 10% of the time, that falls in 95% of the time, that sort of thing, or it turns into a home run this percentage of the time. And they're actually going to use that uh, with uh, effectiveness of a, a pitcher. Hmm. So you can get uh, kind of expected OPS um, from from a pitcher. Um, so last year, Clayton Kershaw was the huge favorite uh, in this stat. So they just they take in, you know, it, it takes out defense um, mm-hmm. because it's just an expected 
Um, kind of like taking Babbitt one step further. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to... to or FIP, to taking FIP one step further. Well, but even... Um, yeah, Babbitt too, a little bit. Yeah. All right, so that's that's one. Uh, the more interesting one to me is catch probability, and that's really just kind of with the same data. So a ball hit into the outfield. Um, what percentage of the time does an outfielder catch it based on how long they had to, to run and how hmm. much time they had? So a 0 to 25% catch probability is a five-star play. So only uh, 1% of the time this ball is caught. You know, that's just a tremendous right. play uh, or all the way up to 25%. So that they consider that a five-star play. 26 to 50% is a four-star, 51 to 75, three-star, 76 to 90 is a two-star, and 91 to 95 is a one-star play. Hmm. Anything below 95 is um, just a horrendously bad play, probably miscommunication in the outfield or something like that. Do you have do you have like the leaders from five star plays last year? Yeah, so last year Adam Eaton and Billy Hamilton. Adam Eaton, wow, were the leaders for that. And I encourage you to go look at the the article because they uh, put some videos in there. So they show like a, a Hamilton catch and say this is a a five percent catch probability. So you know it's a tremendous catch. Or mm-hmm. they put a, a Matt Kemp sliding catch that uh, you know Dick Emberg says you know what a tremendous catch, but really it was kind of an average catch. It's like fifty percent hmm. or I think seventy five percent. Um, so 75% of the time that ball is caught, you know, it's not as great as Kemp right. made it out to be. Uh, some things to tweak um, that they're kind of working on. Uh, it's only available for outfielders. They're hoping to make it um, for infielders with ground balls, but right now it's only outfielders. And it doesn't take into account uh, conditions. So like if it's sunny, windy, that sort of thing, if it's raining, uh, they don't take into account the wall either. Um, and then lastly, uh, direction. So it might be easier to go back on a ball or come in on a ball, go left, right. Hmm. So those are the things that um, I think you could kind of make arguments against this stat. But I'm I'm really intrigued by it. You know, I think it'd be cool during a game or during a highlight to say 3% of the time this ball is caught. I'd be curious to know how uh, willing, like... Um the, like the Comcast sports nets of the world are to it, like sort of integrate some of the stuff in their broadcast. Absolutely. Um, Cause you know, I think MLB network does like a game of the week or, you know, they'll occasionally broadcast the game and they'll obviously use this type of data, but I, I'm curious how much we'll see it just on a normal broadcast. I guess we'll see. Yeah. And, the, and those stats this year can be found at baseballsavant.com. So as the season gets going, baseball savant is kind of the hub for all this data. And, uh, encourage you to check out the the articles um, that talk about hit probability and catch probability on our on our episode page. Well, that is it for out of the box. Uh, moving on to uh, deep dive in the 2001-2002 offseason. Let me be candid, Mr. Chairman. Revenue sharing, relocation, even contraction by themselves will not solve all of the economic problems besetting baseball. It is absolutely true that we need some for a salary restraint. Two-minute warning. Okay. Again, the owners share revenue now and we're prepared to do more. But the union has indicated no willingness to provide any salary restraint. We did have a luxury tax under the last collective bargaining agreement, and the form of tax urged by the Blue Ribbon Panel should be acceptable to the union. Again, I'm disappointed that, that uh, we haven't done this, and, and but I'm very hopeful that in the future, Instead of opposing revenue sharing, salary restraint, that we will solve these problems and not just maintain the status quo, which is unacceptable. What you just heard is uh, Bud Selig in front of Congress on December 6th, 2001. 
So uh, this week's edition of Deep Dive focuses on the 2001 uh, offseason going into the 2002 season. And the main thing we're looking at today is the issue of contraction. Yeah, so this was your idea, the looking at this offseason. And when you initially you sent me a few links, when I started reading about it, I couldn't believe that this doesn't get more attention sort of as we look back on baseball over the last 20 years. I mean, baseball was hanging in the balance for for several teams, and there were so many players involved. You know, it wasn't just the Minnesota Twins Mm -hmm. and the Expos. You know, you had the Marlins involved, the Red Sox were involved, the Angels were involved, Disney was trying to sell them. Obviously, Bud Selig is a major player. Congress got involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could sort of go on and on with, with, with the amount of people that were involved and uh, I mean, there are just some amazing hypotheticals, what ifs that could have happened if contraction would have happened for those two teams that are, are, are pretty amazing to look back on. So, yeah, just a, kind of a stunning, stunning offseason. Yep. And I thought we'd go kind of chronologically through the offseason. Sure. There's a, an ESPN article from um, uh, Dan Schofield yep. that we'll link to. It's very helpful. And it was actually written kind of right during all this. So uh, check that out. And we get a lot of this uh, information from there. So let's start, uh, I guess, during the World Series. Would that be a good Yeah, honestly, I think that's one of the more um, surprising things about this is that Selig began the contraction conversation during, like, the the pinnacle of the baseball season. Prior to Game 2 of the World Series, a really good World Series, went seven games, Yankees-Diamondbacks. You know, the Diamondbacks were an expansion team, a relatively recent expansion team, so... This is a really feel-good moment for baseball, and yet Steelig is going to the reporters talking about contraction. Yep, and you have to remember this was only a couple months after September 11th. Right, yeah, that's a good point. So people see uh, baseball's role in um, healing America after that, you know, with the Piazza home run. Right. Uh, baseball took a week off after 9-11. Um, Sammy Sosa carried a flag around the bases. So people talk about that, but then, I mean, a month later we're talking about mm-hmm. contracting two or more teams uh, from uh, from baseball. So, uh, you know, the World Series happens, the contractions are brought up, and the whole um, idea, and like Seelig mentioned in that video, uh, teams weren't making money. Right. So they claimed to, uh, to not be making money. And uh, so contraction, um, revenue sharing, those things needed to be discussed. Uh, essentially all of Major League Baseball's economic model was was not right. working. Teams Teams were losing money every single year except you know the Yankees and Indians and kind of top tier right teams and uh, it's a leverage play right for for Selig and the owners for them to get players to sort of listen to them when they talk about a more strict you know not a salary cap but a competitive balance tax whatever mm-hmm. you want to call that a luxury tax and for more revenue sharing for, for baseball players to and the players association to accommodate them they have to have some form of leverage and the talking about contracting two teams or even up to four teams was their way of kind of evening out the negotiation. Yep. All right. So moving on, uh, November 26th, uh, Seed League says baseball will contract. I can't give you a precise timetable today because in some parts it's out of our hands. So that's just a few weeks after the World Series. Um, and uh, this was the first year the World Series was in November because of 9-11. Hmm. And it's been, been November ever since. Um, so that's that's how that started. Uh, then December 6th uh, was when Seelig testified in front of Congress. Uh, between those two dates, 
the uh, the Marlins owner John Henry um, uh, comes out and says he wants to buy the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to December twentieth, the Red Sox are sold to John Henry for seven hundred million dollars, and that seven hundred million dollars is more than double the highest um, uh, uh, buying price of a of a team before that. So the Indians sold for a little over three hundred million dollars in two thousand. So that probably goes against what Sealy right. <laughs> says with with teams not making money. Seven hundred million dollars for the for the Red Sox at that time was a lot of money. Uh, January fourth, Ron Gardenhider is hired as the Twins manager. He, of course, he went on to have a, a pretty good run, but at that time, they didn't know if the Twins would have a, a 2002 season. Right. Yeah. And the Marlins, who also were on the chopping block, uh, they did not have a general manager or manager as of January fourth. Uh, February first, the Marlins are sold to Jeffrey Loria, who is the current owner, and he's actually wanting to sell the team. Um, but uh, he had sold the Expos and then flipped that to get the, the Marlins. And uh, he, in a just a jerk move, took all the personnel from Montreal with him to Miami mm-hmm. to get the Marlins. Yeah, uh, I was actually just reading. Uh, Peter has the Jonah Carey Up, Up, and Away book in his personal library. I was reading uh, Jonah Carey's kind of assessment of this, and uh, he noted that they had a Vladimir Guerrero cutout at the expos like offices and they took even that to my like they literally left nothing behind support staff everything was gone announcers even mm-hmm. yeah just a, an awful move by loria and he's certainly not well liked by anyone today mm-hmm. uh, a few days later february 5th nine days before spring training contraction is finally called off and uh, i mean up until this date uh, you had Sandy Alderson, who was working for Major League Baseball at the time, and C-League publicly saying that contraction you know, was going to happen. Mm-hmm. They wanted it to happen. Uh, the two teams weren't going to play right. in the 2002 the, season. The Expos didn't release their schedule or didn't allow teams, like anyone to buy tickets until January 28th, mm-hmm. um, which is just you know a couple weeks before spring training, which is startling. Yep, yeah, and I, you know, Paul, you know, feel free to... To give your opinion, but I go, going into this, I thought you know, C League, you know, should it's all his fault that uh, they're just being greedy as owners. But I do think some good things came of this. I don't know if they ever planned on contracting teams. Of course, that never happened. The Expos moved to um, Washington D.C. That's kind of the only substantial move that came out of all this. Twins got a new park. Yeah, I mean, but in, in terms of relocation, sure. contraction, all that. Uh, revenue sharing exists today, and I think it's serving its purpose. Mm-hmm. It's curbed kind of the top tier teams, and the teams that don't spend a ton of money uh, don't spend because it's kind of part of their rebuilds, not not necessarily because they don't have the money. Sure. And a big part of that is uh, baseball advanced media, TV deals. There's more more money to to spread around. Uh, but I do think C League um, wasn't just talking out of this, but I think there are some legitimate things. The model wasn't. Mm-hmm. wasn't working well for a lot of teams at the time. Yeah, I think with a lot of uh, what Bud Selig did, did, it was more about maybe the means by which he got it done. So, I, yeah, I, I, there's some legitimacy to to what he shared during that congressional hearing and kind of the, the crisis that he said baseball was in. But to, we didn't get hit on this yet, but the, the Blue Ribbon <laughs> Baseball Economic Forum Club, you know, it, it had no player representation it was handpicked by C League. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to talk about that now? 
Uh, sure. Um, so, you know, you had guys like George Will on it. I mean, there are distinguished people. I think he said the Yale president, um, another economist that worked for the U.S. government. But um, So, see, they put this group together to just kind of come up with what's wrong with baseball. Right. Um, it's talked about in Moneyball. Right. The book. Um, and, of course, they're going to come back and tell him what he wants to hear. And uh, he's just not a, a real gifted uh, guy with the media either. So I can see why he was hated. Um, and reality is, you know, we, we haven't talked about this yet. The Expos were in terrible shape. If you go back and look at their attendance, um, they hadn't broken the 1 million mark since 97. So three straight se- or four straight seasons where they're drawing less than 1,000 fans. In 2001, the year before. Mil- a million fans. Right. In 2001, not, not DePaul basketball. In 2001, guess uh, how many fans they drew per game. Uh, I, looked, I looked this up too. Just under 8,000. Under 8,000 per game. Um, 11 minor league teams drew more than the, the Expos wow. that season. Uh, so they were in they were in really bad shape. Um, it's funny. It actually increased to uh, over 10,000 the next season. Right. Well, with both the Expos and the Twins, uh, they were actually decent the, the, the next few seasons. The Expos... Um, we're over 500 the next two seasons. Well, in 2002 was when they traded for Cologne right. and uh, Cliff Floyd, and kind of was, that was like a big story. Like let's root for the Expos, mm-hmm. kind of going against uh, you know baseballs doing everything to to hurt them. Let's let's right. root for them. Uh, and then the Twins won the AL Central uh, three years in a row from 2002 to 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, so both both of those teams did really well. I guess Seelig would say it was partly due to the revenue sharing and. The uh, luxury tax, but um, yeah, it's I mean it's funny with both the Marlins and the Twins. Uh, there's a lot of World Series in in play. So the the Marlins won the World Series in '97, mm-hmm. just a few years before this, and then they won again in 2003. Right. Uh, now they were also drawing really poorly. Uh, they averaged uh, 15,765 uh, fans in 2001, which was second last in baseball behind mm-hmm. the Expos. Uh, then they only averaged. Uh, um, 10,000 fans actually went down, had the opposite effect. 10,000 fans in 2002, so I'm sure Loria was, was upset about that, had the reverse effect. Um, but they won a World Series you know, like a, a couple years later. The Twins won a World Series in 87 and 91, so just a couple, um, uh, just a decade before uh, all this, they won a couple World Series. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I, the Twins doesn't make a ton of sense because they averaged uh, 22,000 fans per game and by no means um, a thriving franchise. Well, for, from what from my reading, what I understand is the Twins were were considered because they had a, a weak owner, um, Carl Polad, who was uh, kind of on the edge of selling the team. So he was willing to contract it, discuss contract and the stadium. They, the lease was out in a year, and so they were kind of ripe for the picking. But yeah, the, the White Sox drew worse than um, than the Twins in the years leading up to this. So kind of sad. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention, uh, if those two teams would have contracted, you would have had a case where the Diamondbacks would have moved to the uh, American League to even out the um, American League and the National League hmm. or to create even, an even amount of teams in each. Yeah. And so you would have had the the World Series champion, the pennant winner of the National League playing so, in the American League the next year. Wow. So you would have had Bob Brenly at the All-Star game the next year, <laughs> managing the National League team, even though his team played in the American League. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. 
All right, well, we'll link to a couple different articles. The This full C-SPAN three-hour video we'll link to the podcast <laughs> episode page if you want to check that out. I actually, I could watch that, the whole thing, and not be bored by it, but I know uh, other people would be. Yeah, well, that was the uh, second edition of Deep Dive. Look forward to, to doing that more in the future. Uh, next up, we have our interview with Dan Rosenheck, uh, who is a writer at The Economist. We're joined now by Dan Rosenheck. Dan is the data editor for The Economist, and he is also the editor of a sports blog there called Game Theory. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Rosenheck. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. So Dan, back in uh, 2015, you presented uh, a fascinating, or at least I found it fascinating, bit of research at the Sloan Conference on the significance of spring training stats. Um, you know, Up until that point, and I think maybe even till now, the general sentiment about spring training, um, specifically spring training stats, was that they're, they're pretty pointless. They don't mean a whole lot. You know, guys aren't really trying; they're experimenting. But your research actually indicated uh, otherwise. In uh, in a nutshell, what did you learn as you dug into into the data? I learned that spring training baseball, although it is different from the regular season in many important respects, is still baseball, and that it has the advantage for predictive purposes of occurring immediately before the season rather than um, five or six months before the season. Um, and given that baseball players are actual humans and they evolve and change uh, every day, every month, um, that the opportunity to have a, sl a, a little sliver of data, however noisy and unreliable it may be, if and only if, you use the right methods to extract the reliable predicted information uh, from it to distinguish the signal from the noise, Will using it will lead to significantly better forecasts than you would get by ignoring it or pretending it doesn't exist. Yeah, that, that, se that se actually seems fairly logical as, as you lay it out there. What kind of caused you to, to take a look at it? Was there, um, was there something in particular that kind of triggered the thought for you? Um. Well, uh, like I think many to most people who get involved in sports statistics, I run an extremely competitive fantasy baseball league, <laughs> and I play to win, and I have uh, always been looking for any edge in coming up with um, better uh, predictions or projections to um, uh, really just for the originally for competitive purposes. And so I'm always looking for uh, any any new statistic or data source or modeling technique I could find to yield better projections. It just like it wouldn't pass the smell test. Mm -hmm. uh, this sabermetric conventional wisdom that um, this whole month of games people play right before the season that there was absolute zero you could take from it, nothing at all. So I figured I would just um, take a crack at it and, you know, see if see if there was anything that, that, that I could extract from it. And I just used some very simple techniques and really the exact same thing that you would do to try to uh, distinguish signal from noise, you know, in the very first days, weeks, months of the regular season when guys are sort of 
starting off hot or starting off cold, and you and you need to try to decipher whether that's just a slow or a fast start or whether it's sort of a harbinger of things to come, just using very similar techniques on the previous month, it just lit up and yielded really significant and valuable results. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I'm just curious to know your, your history uh, with analytics, you know, how you kind of found it, how you got into it. And then uh, I'm just curious to know if, if baseball is your, your kind of your favorite uh, sport to, to get into, or are there other sports that you find yeah. interesting? So um, I have a very, very modest academic background and then I took some, you know, introductory sort of level stats and, and economics classes in college. But basically, I'm largely self-taught. Um, baseball is my uh, great love and passion, uh, always has been. And I was, you know, memorizing uh, everything on the back of a baseball card when I was seven years old and um, sort of learned most of what I know about stats and modeling and uh, predictive analytics from um, just doing uh, baseball forecasting for 10 years and really, you know, from being part of the um, internet baseball stats community. And um, I've just sort of incrementally published all my research as I go and have gotten good feedback. And then in, I guess, 20... 12, I think, I started submitting my projections that I developed just for my fantasy league to the online forecasting competition that was then hosted at Fangrass, hmm. um, and I actually uh, won it three years in a row, and that <laughs> sort of gave me a sense that maybe I was onto something. Hmm. Yeah, three years in a row is pretty impressive. Um, are there, getting back into the, the specific data, are are there specific stats uh, that are more predictive than others? I'm assuming so, but but what would those stats be in terms yes, of spring training? Uh, it is, I mean, it wasn't like I went on some sort of, you know, data mining fishing exhibition and was looking for the, the one weird number that tells you everything you need to know from spring training. I just applied the most basic fundamental findings of sabermetrics um, in every other form of Major League Baseball to spring training. So um, uh, if anybody who has read three articles on fan graphs or baseball prospectus <laughs> knows that r roughly you can split up events on the field first into um, contact versus non-contact, so strikeouts and walks versus batted balls. Then within batted balls, you can look at either trajectory, it is a ground ball or a fly ball. And then if it's a fly ball, is it a fly ball that leaves the yard for a home run or is it fielded? And then um, among balls in play, you can look at whether the batter, whether it was a hit or it was turned into an out. And if it was turned into a hit, how many bases the batter got. And with each step along that spectrum that I just laid out for you, you have increasing noise and decreasing predictive power. So um, the non-contact events, strikeouts and walks, are the most predictive. Um, in uh, you know, a couple weeks, one month of data is going to be enough to tell you um, which guys strike out and walk a lot or a little. Ground ball to fly ball rates um, for both pitchers and hitters 
um, more for pitchers, but also for hitters will also tend to stabilize, as we say, very, very, very fast. A couple weeks of data, you can tell easily who's a ground ball and fly ball hitter or pitcher, and those are going to be very consistent throughout the year. For hitters, uh, not for pitchers, for hitters, uh, the share of their fly balls that wind up becoming home runs, so a measure of power, is a little noisier. I mean, you can have guys go on, you know, power droughts or power streaks, but don't typically see guys with zero power, you know, hitting 30% of their homers over the fence in a month. Mm -hmm. So that can be helpful. And then once you get into the territory of outcomes on balls in play, anything where the fielders have to do anything, those numbers get much noisier and much less reliable in a hurry. And you can get huge random fluctuations of the length of a season or longer that have zero predictive power. So all that we know from regular season baseball and have known it for a long time. So all I did was just literally to apply that same uh, principle, which is sort of second nature in sabermetrics, to spring training. And I just plotted spring training strikeout rates against, against the strikeout rates for the following regular season. Same for walk rates, same for ground ball, fly ball ratio, et cetera, et cetera. And all the scatter plots looked perfect. Guys who had a lot of strikeouts in the spring training went on to have a lot of strikeouts in the, in the regular season. Uh, guys who had a lot of ground balls in the spring training had a lot of ground balls in the regular season, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that um, was very strong evidence that the game they play in March at least bears some similarity to the game they will play in April. Now, in and of itself, that doesn't mean that these stats are going to be useful because it's possible that although there's a correlation, um, it's possible that any information that is uh, present in the spring training numbers was already available from those players' past historical performances, and it wouldn't add anything. But that turned out to be false, that when I basically just said, okay, I'm going to, computer, I'm going to give you two options. You can either predict this guy's strikeout rate next year based just on how he did in, in the Major League regular season in previous years, or you can use that plus the spring training data, that including the spring training data, made the forecast more accurate. Now, it wasn't a huge effect. You know, you would, uh, let's say, maybe if a guy does better in spring training than we otherwise would have expected based on his past major league performance. Uh, this isn't a real number. I'm making it up. But maybe he goes on to outperform that forecast 65% of the time, 70 I don't know. I mean, it's not airtight. Like, lots of guys will have a great spring training and then bomb and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But... On, the, on average, it helps, and you are better off using it than ignoring it. Yeah, it makes sense. It's just more data to, to work with. Um, fin finishing up here, I know you uh, presented at the uh, MIT Sloan Conference yesterday. Uh, just uh, want to know how that experience went, and then uh, if, uh, if you're able, what, uh, what did you present on? Of course. So it was a, something totally new for me. Um, all my prior sports research had been on baseball. But last year, we uh, launched a, I thought, rather exciting project um, at Game Theory, the Economist Sports Vlog, uh, on golf, which basically started at uh, the Masters last year, uh, 2016, 
Jordan Spieth had a big lead with uh, nine holes left to play and blew it in spectacular fashion. And I was just um, asking around to colleagues, well, how unlikely was this? I mean, it was clearly a bad collapse, a bad choke, but was it merely bad? Was it horrible? Was it unprecedented? I mean, what was this guy's win probability? And if it were baseball, I could have just gone to baseball reference and looked it up and seen what the win probability is, and it would have taken one second. And I presumed that there must be something like that available for golf, given the massive data that is available about the sport, and I couldn't find anything. So um, uh, Ken Pomeroy, who's primarily a college basketball statistician, has a Twitter bot that sends out some win probabilities, but it's a stripped-down model that only lives on a Twitter feed, um, and there was no historical um, time to, uh, track record. So I decided it might be a good opportunity for us to build something ourselves. So we built um, really an entire model of golf that projects the probability of each possible outcome for every player on every hole based on every piece of information we could, and then um, aggregates those up using a Monte Carlo simulator into win probabilities. And we produce, we both have a database for every men's major of this millennium, the probability of each outcome on each hole, the probability of winning the tournament after each hole for each golfer. And then we publish those predictively in real time as tournaments go on. So every 15 minutes, we refresh and have a new projected leaderboard that gives you each player's um, chance of victory at any point in the tournament. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting stuff. Did you get good feedback afterwards after you presented? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely. Uh, most of the people, I mean, everybody who came up to us said that they really enjoyed it and that it, it, it's it's kind of baffling with golf given that it's a non-interactive sport which makes it much simpler to model there's basically only one thing to count which is the number of strokes it took you to put the ball in the hole so there's only one thing to model so for a statistician this is like a dream you have huge amounts of data millions of holes it's all clean you can much of it you can just scrape or download I mean, it's, you know, for, for anybody who likes to play with numbers, this is like the perfect playground. And it's weirdly, I mean, maybe an analytics desert is slightly too strong, but um, there isn't nearly as much work done on it as you would have thought. And certainly um, there are a lot of golfers in the economist's audience, so it just made a ton of sense for us. And um, yeah, the feedback from the I mean, I personally am not actually a huge golf fan, but the feedback from the people that were at the talk who are in the golf world was definitely positive and just said that, you know, it's something of a breath of fresh air to get, let's say, baseball quality level analytics in golf. And then, and there was actually there was a, a journalist from Golf Week who said it was, you know, refreshing to have somebody coming at this who is not really a golf guy who's Hmm. just a sports stats guy and sort of comes to it with a fresh mind and no preconceptions. So a great experience. Talk went well, and we'll be putting out our projections for the Masters uh, in a month, and hopefully it'll um, raise its profile and get people clicking and refreshing, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. 
Really, really cool stuff. Well, Dan, we, we appreciate having you on. Before we let you go, do you have a, a World Series prediction for this year? Gosh, I mean, it's pretty boring to say, <laughs> but, um, I mean, the Cubs were long overdue for a title last year. They're a complete juggernaut. You know, their young core is only getting better. I mean, you know, guys like... Um, Russell and Baez and um, Wilson Contreras and, um, you know, healthy Schwarber. I mean, all these guys are going to get better rather than worse. Mm -hmm. So um, they're all cost controlled. They have the payroll room to make moves if they have to. I mean, look, it's baseball. You know, no team is ever going to be... I don't know. I checked the betting markets, but you know, no team is ever going to be better than, a, I guess, a one in five shot at most preseason to win. I'm not just saying this because they won last year, but it's hard to imagine that any other team would have even two thirds of the chances that that they would. I mean, I I know they they won the title last year, but I would say they're just getting started. I mean, I think they've got to be the preseason favorites. Assuming they keep the core together for two or three years more minimum running. I mean, certainly if I had to pick one team, it would be them to repeat without a second thought. Hmm. Yeah, we, we tend to agree here, but uh, we really appreciate having you on, and we'll follow your work on Game Theory and The Economist. Thanks, Dan. All right. Well, thank you very much for your interest. All right. Thanks, Dan. Well, thanks to Dan for joining us uh, on the podcast. Really enjoyed that talk with him. Again, check him out on Twitter and The Economist. We'll link to that in the, the podcast episode page at afootinthebox.com. Well, Paul, uh, our next podcast will be in two weeks, Monday, March 20th. Uh, so uh, this next um, Monday will be our last week off before the, the season. And uh, so it's our last week off until uh, the off season mm-hmm. next year. So... Uh, Enjoy your last. Seems daunting. Enjoy your last weekend off. Um, you're going to a wedding, correct? Going to a wedding that I was uh, surprisingly not invited to. Yes. No hard feelings, though. Uh, I want to give a shout out to David, who uh, uh, has been a loyal podcast listener from the beginning, and uh, has uh, been on the program a couple times. He he visited Champion this past weekend. So, shout out to David. Appreciate your support. We enjoyed many fast food establishments. In, uh, in the area well uh, the only thing I got uh, February was our second biggest month for podcast downloads so I like to keep the, the listeners up to date on uh, on how we're doing exponential growth <laughs> we had 587 downloads uh, in February of 2017 2016 uh, we had 314 hmm. so about double uh, our only month bigger than February was last November when the Cubs won the World Series. Hmm. So thanks for listening. Uh, feel free to share our podcast with a friend, family member that likes baseball. We would love um, to uh, experience baseball with them. Uh, you can email us at afootinthebox at gmail.com. Give us your thoughts on uh, spring training. Give us your thoughts on the uh, the 2001 offseason uh, about Brett Laurie's Instagram, <laughs> all that stuff. St. Louis's food scene. Uh, give us your thoughts at afootinthebox at gmail.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We'd love if you left us a review there as we head into another season of podcasting. 
help us more people uh, find the show when you review um, review a podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at a foot in the box, and you can check us out online at a foot in the box dot com. That's all I got. Probably got anything else? Just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Come up to meet you. Tell you I'm sorry. You don't know how lovely you are. I had to find you. Tell you I need you. Tell you I set you apart. Tell me your secrets and ask me your questions. Oh, let's go back to the start Running in circles, coming in tails Heads on a silence